<laughs> there it goes. Um, yeah, I remember we were uh, doing rehearsals, and I think you asked something about the Philippines because I brought it up for some reason, and then. Did, were you stationed there? Or? Actually, I was stationed in northern Japan. Okay. But uh, being in the military, there were quite a few folks that were married to Filipino women. Uh-huh. Because we used to have a, you know, a lot of bases in the Philippines. They closed down the bases in the Philippines in the early 90s, mm-hmm. late 80s, early 90s. and uh, But still, there were quite a few service members that were married to you know Filipino women, especially. Oh, okay. And um, so, yeah, so a lot of Filipinos... That I would meet on base thought I was Filipino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah. And then people totally... from Guam, too, thought yeah, I was from yeah, yeah. Guam as well, yeah. Right. And then even the Japanese people were asking if I was part Asian or part Japanese. They're like, you, you're part Japanese? I'm like, no, no, not at all. Right, right, <laughs> I'm yeah. Just, I'm Mexican, but, you know, uh, yeah, we it's... have the recessive trait of, of the eyes. Because, well, I mean, if you really look at history, more and more evidence is shown that, is being shown that uh, the Chinese and, you know, um, uh, Pacific Islanders actually did make it to the west coast of the Americas. Oh, seriously? You know? So yeah, they're suspecting that there's there were a few Chinese settlements that mm-hmm. never went back. That basically were it was a one way trip, and they integrated with the Native Americans that were there at the time. So I did that's not why, know that. yeah. So that's why a lot of like the Mayan, the old Mayans and the Incas and whatnot, and so some of the old tribes they have. Uh huh. Oh, the trait of uh, having kind of more almond shaped eyes. Oh, that's pretty nice. So yeah, in my family, me and my cousin are definitely a lot more pronounced with our eyes. Uh huh. So do you know if 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 you go back far enough, if you do have any of the? Um. I, well, I do have Native American blood. Yes. You know, my grandfather is actually a quarter Mayan Indian, or okay. a full blooded Mayan Indian. So I'm a quarter Mayan Indian. Mm-hmm. Um. And then also I'm part Tiwa Indian and also Yaqui Indian. Oh, okay. So. Very cool. And all those, you know, tribes have been around for centuries, so yeah. there's a good chance that way back in the lineage. Somewhere in there. Yeah, there's yeah. blood that came from that. And of yeah. course, all the blood in our Mexican and all Mexican blood is, is, you know, Spanish blood mixed with Indian blood. Right. Yeah. So. That's what uh, I get a lot with with Serena. She's she's um, mostly Mexican and a little bit Apache, yeah. uh, my wife. And um, she thought I was Mexican for the longest time. I thought you and were then, too, especially yeah, with your last I, name. Yeah. yeah, I get that a lot. And then, um, but again, Spain ruled uh, yep. the Philippines for how long? They colonized the Philippines for a few hundred years. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it's 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 pretty funny to see where the the cultures line up. Because um, she was telling me about a, a a white guy she dated, and it just it was such a culture clash. Uh, but with my family, it was it was really easy to integrate and. There's a lot of similarities oh, yeah. drawn between the two, our two families at least. Probably because of the the commonality yeah. of, uh, of Spanish, yeah. you know, yeah. Spanish it's pretty heritage. Um, I'm, you're Frank. Yep. Thank you. For, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted like a superhero name or <laughs> well, a pro uh, wrestling my, my name. My full name is actually a superhero name. My name is Francisco Estanislao Gaxiola. There it is. Which, Perfect. Yeah, which is a beautiful Spanish that name. That is a great name. Yeah, yeah, my brother Joseph Andrew, my sister Jessica Nicole, and me, Francisco Estanislao. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, we're going to give him. Are you the, the oldest? I'm the middle child. You're the middle child. So, yeah, I'm older brother, younger sister. How so. was that? Did you notice any. Uh, Differences in treatment. Oh yeah, being the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, especially in a Spanish family mm-hmm. uh, or in a Mexican family. Yeah, um, went through quite a bit of a process uh, of my oldest brother was the firstborn, so definitely given a special status because mm-hmm. he's firstborn. Yeah. So, and then my younger sister, of course, was not only the baby but the only girl. So, oh, okay, yeah. So I basically grew up a very, very independent child. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 
It was, and actually, even hearing from my parents being told, you know, you'll actually. I was told a few times, I had a rough childhood, uh, was told quite a few times by my parents, especially by my mother, that I will not mean as much to her as my brother is because he's firstborn. You know? Shit. So well, it's, it's yeah, long story. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely it has affected. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, in my opinion, it's made me a lot more, um, I'm a lot more balanced and a lot more... Uh, more of a champion for the little guy, you yeah. know, also a lot more independent, yeah, yeah, you know, and not really having to needing, you know, have that need for approval, I guess, right? Right, because I always just did my own thing without, you know, mm -hmm. with um, my 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 family, uh, there's a lot of shit that happened, and um, with I didn't even know I had an older sister until way later because she oh, wow. they she was raised in the Philippines, um. So then I, I thought I was the oldest because I have two younger brothers. And then I, I find out that she was the oldest. So it was kind of this weird identity thing of I thought I was a top dog. And then, um, <laughs> but then they were, they were, she was valedictorian of her class. And then my little brother was also, and then my, they're both engineers and my oh. sister's a nurse, which is in the, the Asian world, what you're supposed to be, at least with yeah. Filipinos. Um, so then me, uh, I'm going to go do acting, everybody. And so it, it wasn't really uh, that cool, but I guess it was all right because I got sandwiched um, in there. Um, I met you while doing a play. Uh, could you give a little bit of a rundown with, uh, I guess, your history with, with theater or even just acting in general? Well, we met during, uh, what was the, the um, I, I want to call it Torch Song Trilogy, but no, that's not, it's uh, the obviously... Love. Uh, Love and Violence Trilogy, yes, there yes, you go. Yes. The Love and Violence Trilogy, written by Luke Gomez. Mm -hmm. uh, three short plays, yeah, written by Luke Gomez. Uh, for B3, it actually was the very first production of B3. Yes, the Bear Black yeah, Box Productions. That. Um, that's actually a group that I had just started um, mm -hmm. because I wanted to try to uh, showcase local playwrights, local unpublished plays written by local playwrights. And Luke Gomez was definitely a great choice for that. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I uh, started up that group, and thank God you auditioned for us. You were fantastic in the shows. Thank you, so, thank you. Um, well, it was kind of just a side project to do, mostly because I've been working in comedy for so long, mm -hmm. producing and directing uh, comedy shows in The Sixth Sense, which is a sketch comedy group that I started 10 years ago, that I my first passion is theater. You know, mm -hmm. So when I tend to spend too much time away from theater and concentrate more on the comedy side... I have that need for the right. theater, so that's why it started B three, so I can satisfy that you know side of myself as well. Yeah. Um, for that one, yeah, I just uh, stage managed that one. Yes. And helped, yeah. Uh, helped Luke out a bit yeah. with, with that one. That was a really good production. Yeah. It was really a lot was... of fun. With B three, it's still running. I actually turned it over to a woman by the name of Ilana Lydia. Okay. Uh, she's a local playwright and director in town, and somebody I've known since two thousand and three on a project mm -hmm. that we worked together. A couple projects we worked together that year. Yeah. Mm. She's an amazing artist and a, definitely a wonderful brain who does not think linearly or doesn't, her brain does not definitely work as a normal person's brain works, which is why I absolutely dig the hell out of her. Um, anybody whose brain is slightly different. Uh, so she's got a great, unique perspective upon things. And so because of all the work that I was doing with The Sixth Sense and keeping The Sixth Sense Theater open where we you know, did the shows, of, well, the B3 show at, um, it just became too much on my plate. 
Okay. That, and she, most of the plays that we started uh, working on, she knew a lot of the playwrights, and she really kind of grabbed the ball and ran with it. Oh, uh, cool. Made her an assistant associate, uh, assist, uh, actually an associate artistic director. And then in, I think it was in September, that I actually mm-hmm. officially passed over the complete reins to her and made oh. her the, the artistic director with me as the yeah. artistic advisor. So, so that's luckily still running. They've got a uh, night of one acts coming up in June that she's putting together. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll see how much longer it sticks around now, now that I'm going to leave town. Yeah. You know? With, which it was great working there because um, it, it's weird. You, you don't really, at least with the people I ran around with, for some reason Phoenix doesn't get uh, a credit for having an artistic uh, environment. Yeah, you always hear LA, New York, Chicago, the bi- the bigger places. It's a shame we're the fifth largest city. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's, so it's great when I when I hear these things starting up or these thing these um, organizations doing work in the community, and I get super excited. Um, how did you get involved with theater? Like Ooh, what was the, the, the origin uh, story? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, actually, probably the very beginning, well, if you really want to go all the way back, when I was a kid, okay. I actually put together plays with the neighborhood kids. Oh, um, nice. I would usually direct it. My brother would be involved as well. And they were basically, we would do our version of Grease, our version yeah. of uh, an episode on TV that we saw, or uh-huh. things like that, is the shows that we would do. And we would just, yeah memorize it or just make up our own lines and the characters and invite our parents down to watch it you know um and i actually directed a lot of those and started quite a few of those um and then uh nothing really happened until my eighth grade year in junior Mm -hmm. high i was a band geek for throughout uh, grade school and junior high basically trumpet and uh in high school i had signed up for a band and um, we, I was in an honors English class, and my teacher had a couple of our seniors that were graduating from the high school, our high school, come by to visit her, and they offered to do improv mm-hmm. uh, exercises with her advanced class, which I was in. So she let them, and I ended up finding myself up there and realized that I was witty, I was quick on my feet, I was able to, to get... Uh, you know, do different characters, was making the class laugh. And it was one of those exercises where it was freeze improv. Okay. Where you, somebody in the audience yells out freeze and they run up and they take the place of one of the people. Yeah. And everybody kept taking the place of the other person leaving me up there. Oh, shit. And that's when I started realizing, <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, something's going on. I've got, you know, I've got good instincts with this. And so when that summer before school started, I had the opportunity to go in and switch changing in my classes and my schedule so I dropped band picked up drama you know yeah, yeah. drama and started uh, doing shows at school once I uh, started high school and then also started competing um, in theater uh, yeah both uh, solo performance and dual performances um, and started actually getting awards for it my fresh no actually my sophomore year is when I started getting awards for it um, and yeah it's just kind of one of those situations where almost every play I was either the comic lead or the lead in the shows yeah um, getting trophies and awards in pretty much every single tournament that I went to, made state the state competitions uh, two of the four years I was in school. Pretty much was the central figure of the drama department for yeah. for the time that I was there. When I graduated, 
I actually uh, went through a rough patch and ended up joining the military about nine months after I graduated. Okay. Um, but when I went to, after basic training in technical school, I got stationed in Japan, in northern mm -hmm. Japan. And there was a theater organization on base, oh. um, the Misawa Theater Guild in Misawa, Japan, that was comprised mostly of uh, folks on base, not only active duty personnel, but dependents, basically, you know, wives or kids. Mm -hmm. uh, the kids were 18, uh, uh, at least 18, that were you know, kids of service members that were living on base. And also a couple of teachers that were teaching at the school. And so I ended up getting involved with that group. We did a few shows like Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, Midsummer Night's Dream. And when we would perform them, we would actually do uh, two weeks off base okay. at the local rec center or the local uh, civic center. Because most of the Japanese in that area, most of the Japanese in general, or I think anyway, <laughs> my experience, yeah, uh, yeah. know a good amount of English. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we performed our shows in English and they would follow along and they'd get it. Um, and then we'd do... a the same show a couple weeks on base, you know, make it easier for people on base to come see the show. Uh, it kind of cracks me up, though, because I got involved with them, I think, like, in the first month that I got to Japan. Yeah. I was in Japan for two years, and uh, one of the, the very first show we did, which was maybe three months after I got there, was a, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. And I got cast as Charlie Brown. And... Uh, which, by the way, I'm not really a good singer, but I can character <laughs> sing. I'm a yeah, character yeah. actor, and I can character sing. So yeah. that's what I had to do for him. But we did the show you know, in town for a couple of weeks, and then we did the show on base. So from that moment on, for the rest of the time that I was there in Japan, I would, Masawa was a pretty small town. I would be off base walking around, and I would have locals recognize me and get excited. They'd go, oh, Charlie Brownu, Char Charlie Brown, Charlie yeah. Brownu. Yeah. So yeah, I would have people freaking out and calling me Charlie Brown on the streets the entire rest of the time <laughs> that I was there. So that was kind of fun. That's pretty badass. Um, I got back to the States, uh, got stationed back to the States, and just became too busy. And plus, I was in a remote area that there were no theater opportunities. When I got out of the military and moved back to Phoenix, I was involved with a lot of other projects that kept me busy mm -hmm. until about 2002. Okay. And I happened to run into some friends of mine, or I had friends of mine at the time, uh, Damon Deering with Nearly Naked Theater. I actually okay. knew through mutual friends, and we became friends while I was in the military. And he was casting for a show in 2002 called The King of Infinite Space with his theater company, Nearly Naked Theater. And uh, we had a bunch of mutual friends were auditioning. He encouraged me to audition since I had previous experience in theater. So I did. Luckily, it was a big cast, and so I was able to get in the show. And once I did a show again after eight years of not doing shows, it right. jumped me right back to yeah. realizing this was my passion. That's so from there on, yeah, just how, ran with that. How did your, um, did your parents, were they supportive of it? Oh, or yeah. was it? Oh, okay. They weren't when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah? Well, they, it was interesting because I remember being... I don't remember why I said it. Probably when the time I was doing the plays with the kids in the neighborhood, I told them that I wanted to do acting classes or, or get involved with acting or in theater. And we were poor, you know. So their immediate response was, it takes too much money. No, mm -hmm. you know, we're not that rich. You know, that's something that rich people do, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, of... Unfortunately, there were opportunities within the community at the time. My parents just didn't know about them. That's the yeah. one bad thing about Phoenix. Back to, again, to being the fifth largest city and not really yeah. being a very cultural city, especially when it comes to theater. 
it's it's out there and there's a good amount of it yeah. but it's just nobody knows about it it's not easy to come across not easy to find and unfortunately the the theater community yeah. and the culture of the city suffers from it why do you think it's it's not it's uh, a lot of it a lot about. of it has to do with the politicians in this state oh you know they yeah. don't see the value in culture they don't see the value in arts mm-hmm. we're one of the work well not just with arts but with education we're one of the oh, worst states to for fund for so for so many things that are so integral to our culture to, yeah. to our society you know they just I don't know why they don't get it but they don't get it yeah mm. and it's yeah that's why I always I always think it's so weird because we have we have so many different kinds of people here and, and like you said we're we're so big as a city you would think we'd get it going but I mean it doesn't make sense if if the people calling the shots are yeah. are not putting the money where I think one of the mindsets for the history of Phoenix is the fact that because you go down to Tucson and there's so much more embracing of their culture say, yes. of their difference of the different cultures that live in the city of the history even mm-hmm. beyond the Native American and the Spanish and the Mexican and the, the Anglo everything history of that area they're, they celebrate it they acknowledge it they're, the arts they're very big into the arts and street festivals and promoting their arts Phoenix though it it's, was, for the longest time, for many decades, throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, was considered to be a resort city, you know, a place oh. to go. For, there were tons of resorts, tons of golf courses. There still are. I think that's what kind of got embedded into the mindset of a lot of politicians, mm-hmm. um, is that it's much more of a, of a place to kind of more get away, but not really not to, to stay in. Not really to say or develop, develop the culture. We really didn't start really developing into a real city, in my opinion, until the early to mid 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when we really, the population started really exploding yeah. and putting in all the freeways, etc. But again, they, for some reason, yeah, the politicians have never yeah. really grasped the importance of things like. You know, culture. <laughs> Which is just, it seems like it's such a basic, uh, uh, like it's common sense. Yeah. Because we, we well, all have with education. Our, yeah. Well, <laughs> shit, yeah. You know. And it's, it's crazy. Like I, when I, when I teach my kids and then I, I hear about the shit that they're cutting in schools, yeah. I mean, you'd think you'd want to keep this stuff. And it, it it's mind boggling. And I, I, I don't know how to. I don't even know how to deal with my four and five year olds. Yeah. So I'm like, well, go into this shitty system, I guess. Like, cause since I'm in, since I'm lead teacher, I can, I can uh, choose and make sure I can develop their skills. I could expose them to different music, different different stories, and um, stuff like that. But then it's going to this thing that's it's kind of it's whitewashed, and then there's no arts, and it's yeah. it's shitty. It's uh, Right now, during my day job, I actually work for the Great Arizona Puppet Theater. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm the office manager there. And there's a program that we do um, called Reach Out with Puppets that we actually get grants from different corporations and organizations um, and private donations to actually pay for the tickets for Title I schools for kids. So that way they can come on field trips to our theater and not have to worry. The school and the district and the, the kids themselves don't have to worry about paying admission. We've got their admission paid for by the yeah. grants, you know, to at least have some culture. And the yeah. teachers that we talk to, they're like, this is the only trip that we take every year because we yeah. don't have the funding. We don't have anything really in place at the schools for arts, you know, much yeah. anymore. You yeah. know, this is really their only exposure that they're getting to, to something like that. Yeah. And it's, and we we were talking about Trump earlier. Uh, it's such a weird 
kind of a conflicting time. You have this whole Trump thing with all this hate, and um, but then there's a few things that to me are like glimmers of hope. And with I saw Hamilton at Gamage uh, destroyed my credit card to get that. <laughs> yeah. But I was I was talking to my wife about it, and it, it just sucks that the tickets are so expensive because I think youth of color or youth oh, from man. those uh, socioeconomic uh, backgrounds would feel empowered to see uh, black and brown people on stage being revered, yeah. so talented, but but sitting in there, it was, yeah, it was mostly a white, really rich crowd um, to sit in, and it's... It, it sucks. It, I don't know if there's there's a like that's great that there's programs that you guys do with the grants to, to pay for kids to go, but I mean hopefully people more people are able to see it. Yeah, and even that there's a drop in the bucket. You know, yeah. of how yeah. many? Exactly. Well, we're, we're a city of over five million people. You know. Yeah. Or no, fifth largest city of a city of over three million people, and I mean, especially with the program that we do, we help maybe two thousand kids, right. two five hundred kids. Yeah. And that's barely a dent in yeah. how many kids are in this yeah, yeah, city, yeah. you know. And it's 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 kind of discouraging yeah. like, to to try to well, stay positive with this huge other side that's that's so hateful and ignorant, throwing shit. Yeah. Um, how long were you in the the military? I was in for five and a half years. Five and a half years. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I joined in '92. Uh, mm-hmm. February '92 is when I left for basic training. Okay. Which, by the way, was probably one of my favorite times of my life. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I loved basic training. What did you... Uh, uh, every moment so of your day was planned out for you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't nice. have to really think. You didn't have to nice. think about what to wear because you wore the same, you know, the uh-huh. same uniform. No, not the same uniform, but, you know, you know right, pretty right. much the same uniform. Just uh, not the actual same items of clothing, but, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, every second of your day was planned out. Everything was taken care of. Uh, actually, I was a heavy smoker before I joined. I'm still a heavy smoker now. But uh, it was probably three weeks into basic training before I realized I hadn't had a cigarette because yeah. I was just, your day is so taken up by so many things. Um, and, well, let's face it, I'm gay. So showering 50 guys was pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty, showers, guys, let's go. <laughs> but one of the things that kind of cracks me up is, I mean, I have... I alluded to it a bit before, I'd been through a lot in my life, and especially at the point where I joined the military, I had really almost hit rock bottom, had come close to hitting rock bottom in my life. And I've always been a very, well, if this is wrong, let me do what I can to change the outcome, change direction, change, let's take on a new adventure, let's do something drastic to change the, you know, change the pattern that I'm in. And so that was one of the things that I did, the reason why I joined the military. And... Um, so going in, I knew, and luckily I had a recruiter that was very straightforward and honest with me. Okay. You know, he wasn't one of these that gave me a bunch of big promises that were lies. Uh-huh. He was very frank and very, very straightforward and honest with me. And so I went into basic training knowing what I was getting into. Yeah. I also went into basic training with a little bit more, uh, I would say, probably personal strength than a lot of the guys. You know, I joined, there's a, I'm surrounded by all these really big, butch, you know, tough guys and... The very first night that we spent in basic training, and of course, once you arrive, you're being screamed and shouted at, and yelled uh-huh. at, you know, as soon as you get there. Yeah. And so we finally get to our beds. We arrived at, it was like 10, 11 o'clock at night. So we're getting processed late, late at night. We're eating dinner at like midnight, you mm-hmm. know, and then finally getting in bed about one, you know, one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. And I'm laying down and I'm 
trying to relax and go to bed, I hear all around me sobbing and crying. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, here yeah. I am, probably the smallest guy here, maybe the only homosexual in the room, you uh-huh. know. I'm surrounded by like, all these big, masculine, you know, yeah. obnoxiously tough guys. Tough guys yeah. And they're all fucking sobbing and crying. <laughs> and I'm, here I am going, dude, right. what the hell, you know? Yeah. Would you... Would you say it was probably attributed to coming from a privileged background for them? Um, probably more so, not necessarily privileged, but probably more sheltered. Okay. There's definitely a difference. Yeah. Um, because uh, basically, well, let's face it, the majority of people, they don't really leave home yet. You know, So the majority okay. of the people, it was probably their very first time ever living away from their parents. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, being away from their family, from their, their this and that. I've always been kind of a very independent person, so right. I choose to see those things more as opportunities than, yeah. you know and yeah. I had plenty of time away from my family and kind of running my own life by that point mm-hmm. you know okay. pretty much raising myself since I was about I'd say 14 15 years yeah. old so do you uh, do you mind sharing a little bit of because earlier you said no, no, you had a, a rough a rough childhood yeah, no, I don't and mind. I I'm always because I studied psychology yeah. in school and I love it because I I came from a really uh, a fucked up situation also. So then I love hearing just the stories of people because then it's it's really interesting to see where they land eventually yeah. or even just at certain points in life. The backgrounds and see what everybody has been through. Yeah. Their, their journeys that have brought them to where you've... Yeah. Your path's crossed. Because it's... You know? I find that very of, fascinating myself. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's... I'll talk to um, some coworkers or even just people in life who haven't been through as much as uh, me or other people... And just the stuff they complain about is, uh, maybe childish is the word I, I want to say, but it's kind of, really, you're whining about about that? <laughs> <laughs> about that? I mean, so it's, I mean, if you want to share as much as yeah, you want. I don't like um, shared anything. I mean, in my life, I've been in and out of therapist since I was a kid, so oh, okay. I'm so open about talking yeah, yeah. about it. I'm so blessed. Awesome, yeah. yeah. Although I don't think my parents appreciate it, but uh, yeah. I don't plan on letting them listen to it anyway. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah same here. But, um... Uh, but basically, uh, I was, my family's from a very small copper mining town in eastern Arizona. Okay. And um, uh, what's interesting is actually it's such a small town that my parents' families actually grew up as friends. So mm-hmm. like my aunts and my aunts and uncles on each side were actually childhood friends that grew up with each other. Okay. Um, my dad and my mom dated when they were kids, and my mom got pregnant when she was 15, 16 years old. You know? mm-hmm. Um so they started definitely early. And of course, this was the early 70s. If you get somebody pregnant, you have to marry them. Yeah. And both sides are very, very strict Catholic families. So Oy. it was very much, yeah. <laughs> exactly. it was very much, you know, you guys must get married, you know. So they got married and, and they really should not have. <laughs> yeah. You know, they both, now both of them were still kids. They, you know. Haven't even figured themselves out yet. Right. And on top of that, my dad volunteers and heads off to Vietnam before he's even 18. You know, Whoa. in fact, he skipped town and went and called my grandmother. My grandmother had to find out um, by a phone call from from basically the processing, uh, army processing station in Phoenix saying, your son is here, he's under 18, we need your permission to be able to you know, yeah. him in. and she's like oh, well I guess there you go <laughs> you give him permission I guess if he's there yeah. um, so he took off to Vietnam and he volunteered for Vietnam yeah, not just for one say. tour but two 
Oh, fuck. And okay, it well, really messed him up I in the bet. head. And I, he grew up also in a very, very abusive family. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that his parents divorced when he was in junior high or high school. So okay. um, uh, I didn't meet my bi- actual biological grandfather until you know, quite a few years you know, into my childhood. And the man that I knew as my grandfather, they had actually, my grandmother and him had gotten married before I was even born, you know, mm. my step-grandfather. So that's my grandfather. But my father grew up in a very abusive situation, and it's just one of those cycles, you know. You grow up in an abusive and bad situation, and unfortunately, when you deal with stress or things get bad, you revert back to what you had to deal with, uh-huh. I suppose. So I had a very tumultuous childhood. Uh, my father was an extremely extremely abusive person especially to my mother I mean to the point of literally almost killing her quite a few times Mm -hmm. Um, maybe it was because I was forced from an early age to be very independent and very you know um, self uh, uh, self self-resilient person but it got to the point uh, by about my my fifth grade or so that when he would start you know destroying everything in the house and beating my mom's head into walls and pulling, you know, guns, you know, clicking empty guns at her and stuff like that. And, you know, literally beating her to a pulp. I would stand up. I would yell and shout. I would, you know, bang on the door that he would, you know, trap her in. I would basically try to, to fight for her. And mm-hmm. I would get the brunt then. You know, my brother and my sister would run and hide in my room. I would basically stand up to my father and get the brunt of it. Um, unfortunately, the cycle of abuse also trickled down. My mom was a bit abusive, more mm-hmm. emotionally than anything. My brother was extremely physically abusive and got away with it because, again, being firstborn, mm-hmm. he got a lot of privileges. And one of them was that didn't matter how he behaved or what he did to me, I still had to basically bow down and, and you know, it's, yeah. it was always my fault, you know. And we're not talking about the typical sibling abuse. I mean, I had actual physical scars on my body until my 20s because of the dad, because of the physical things that he had done to me. Yeah. Um, and he flat out had admitted a couple times that yeah, he wished that he was an only child, that he wished that I was never born. We did not get along, my brother and I, until probably our 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, he always kind of resented me. And one of the reasons why he did, he was extremely cruel to me quite a few bit through my life. And... One of the biggest reasons, I think, is because not only is he the kind of person that kind of really does wish that he was an only child at the time and hated the fact that, you know, he had competition, um, but I was an excelled kid. Oh, okay. And so when I was in grade school, my uh, I was in excelled classes. Uh, the school wanted me to move up grades, but my parents wouldn't let them. Uh, my parents thought it would be a good idea since I was so much further ahead. Mm-hmm to help my brother because my brother struggled with school to help my brother with his homework to help my brother with his work and that was definitely a big ego blow to him you Mm -hmm. know to have your younger brother help you out when we went to the same high school um, at the time we weren't living in the same household because my parents divorced when I was 12 and I chose to live with my father and uh, his new family rather than staying with my mom and my siblings yeah uh, which created a huge rift uh, because even at the time I did not get along with pretty much anybody in my family yeah and it would be it's a big surprise that I chose to live with my extremely abusive father I was gonna ask what which fucked me up in a lot of ways yeah I was gonna say what what, why Uh, because of my brother because of the abuse that I was getting from my brother and 
the lack of support and being able to even just be heard from my mother. Um, my brother at the time during the divorce and when they first split, um, first of all, when we were, my mom took us in a room and told us that they were getting divorced, my brother and sister had breakdowns. I was smiling and told her that I was glad and it yeah. was about time because yeah. it was way past time that they needed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even had that self-awareness at 12. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, I was already suicidal at the time and tried hanging myself and I was a cutter and taking pills and blah, blah, blah by that point. But um, but when, uh, yeah, when it came to, uh, during that time, my brother, of course, was definitely very emotional and acting out. Um, yeah, at that point, he had broken every single door in the house when I would try to get away from him and lock myself in the bathroom or lock myself in my parents' room or my room, and he would break down the doors to get after me, and I would be then the one to be blamed because I shouldn't have what? locked myself away or I shouldn't oh. have antagonized him or I shouldn't have, you know. Um, and most times, I didn't do shit. As soon as we were left alone, he would start staring me down and then start you know, chasing after me or doing things. But yeah, he threw me in the pool and was hitting me in the head every time I came up for water with the... With the skimmers, you know, with the pole oh, and the fuck. skimmers and yeah. shit like that. Uh, there were the scars that I had on my body were actually nail scars, from, or scars from his nails, you know, ripping my uh, chest into shreds. Mm-hmm. You know, like pinning me down and doing that kind of shit, and then me getting the blame for it. You know, when my mom would come home. So um, and strictly being told it's because he's firstborn. You know, mm-hmm. and I'll never mean as much because he's firstborn. Blah blah blah. And when I chose to live with my father and his new family. It, yeah, that was basically a huge mistake as well. Because uh-huh. um, the abuse definitely didn't stop. Things didn't change. His okay. cheating ways also didn't change. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, was, my father was incapable of being faithful to any woman for the majority of his life. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that kind of, you know, by the time I lived with my father for about two years or so, two, two and a half years, and finally my father had it. And basically, not only didn't really want me around anymore, but was planning on moving to Prescott, uh, where his current wife had left to move to, to get away from him, and they were making amends. Uh Um, And I wanted to stay at my school, so I chose to move back at home, you Mm -hmm. know, with my mom and uh, my sister. And I think my brother wasn't living there at the time, which made it... A better place to move into. Okay. Um, but once, uh, after living with my dad for like two, two and a half years, the majority of the time it was actually just he and I in an apartment by ourselves. He was never there. I was always real involved with school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was never there and real involved with my friends. From a very early age, my friends became my chosen family and my refuge, my, my, my safe, you know, my safe harbors. Mm-hmm. So by the time I moved back in with my mom for half my junior year and my senior year, I was independent. I was cooking for myself, doing my own laundry, having taking you know, took care of everything. I was getting good grades in school. Granted, I was doing a lot of drugs and skipping a lot of school, but luckily I was still getting you know solid grades, very popular, well liked at school. Um, that I came back a very even more so an independent person, running my own life, doing my own thing. And of course, my mom wanted me to fall underneath her rule and her you know laws, and especially my stepdad who. We won't even get to talk about him. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. So, actually, again, it ended up being, you know, a lot of fights and a lot of abuse, uh, mental and emotional abuse for my mom because everything was my fault. And I I also was at the point where the rules that she would lay on me, I'm like, why? Mm-hmm. Why? It, this doesn't make any sense. 
Mm-hmm. I'm everything's taken care of. I'm doing what I need to do. I'm getting great grades. Why? Why are you restricting me and telling me I can't do this, can't do that? I'm fine. Uh-huh. You know, you have no reason to to try to lay this rule on me when everything else is fine. You're basically just putting rules on me to control me. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. You know. She didn't, of course. No parent really appreciates being asked no. why you're <laughs> Just because I said. Like, yeah, that was the... And, and, and admittedly, you know, she was very, very hurt that I chose to live with my dad. And once I lived with my dad, I really didn't talk to her or visit her very much. Mm. I mean, hell, there were a few years that I had to refer to my mom as, you know, her, through her first name rather mm. than mom because our relationship was so bad. Yeah. I mean, luckily, her and my relationship is one of those things that has fixed itself as adults. But, you know, at the time, it was a bit rough. Um, And there's plenty of things in my past that I wonder if how things would have been different my first time because of all the abuse and everything. My first memory of my life is actually being picked up above my father's head and being thrown across the room and almost going through a window on on the second floor of our apartment. Um, because, yeah, I apparently hit the wall just right next to the window. He what the shit? Picked me up. Literally over his head and threw me. I was like two, yeah. three years old at the time. Yeah. You know, um, the, but there, well, that's one thing. Another thing that I really think about how different my life would be. Well, my first attempt at my life was probably about nine years old, taking everything in the medicine cabinet. Um, and then uh, probably the first, uh, the, not the first, what, what am I thinking of? Um, one of the things, yeah, one of the ways that I like to reflect and think about how different my life would be was in sixth grade. My father was taking a nap, mm-hmm. and the day before, it was a really bad, bad experience with him beating my mom to a pulp. And uh, I actually went into their bedroom and knew where he kept his gun uh, in a shoebox in the closet, and I actually went and got it, and I aimed it at him and tried pulling the trigger. Uh, the gun had the safety on. I was not aware at the time, and, and when it wouldn't do what it was supposed to do, I got, of course, extremely freaked out and scared that mm-hmm. he was going to wake up and see me there and quickly, like, you know, put it back in its hiding place and, and, and left the room. But that's one thing I think about every now and then is, well, how drastically my yeah, life would be different would... had the gun gone oh, off. fuck. You know? I mean, yeah. I was, what? 11, 12 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm 11, because it would have been, yeah, just before the divorce. Yeah. So. Damn. That's nuts. I. Yeah, 11, 12. Yeah. Did you, or, I mean, through life, I don't know where you are now with the anger. I remember being so angry, because uh, uh, my dad was physically and uh, emotionally and mentally abusive to, to me and my mom. And, um, of course, I was mad at him. And I had a, a similar experience where uh, he didn't have a gun, so I got a kitchen knife. And I remember just uh-huh. sleeping there and how easy it would have been yeah. to just do it. And they would, they would fight so bad. And it event- my anger eventually turned to my mom. Like, why don't you kick him out? You see what he's doing to us. Yeah, I was going through the same thing. And, and, and she just, uh, I don't remember Do what you- even her reasoning was for it. It's... So you never found out what... Because what, I found out what my mom's reasoning was. My mom's reasoning to stay in the, the relationship was because of her family and her parents who were strict oh. and very devout Catholics. Yeah. You do not divorce. Yeah. You stay in... It doesn't matter what he does to you. It doesn't yeah. matter what he does with other women. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You stay married. Yeah. You do not get divorced. Yeah. 
No, it, it, Which is one of the reasons why I probably have as many issues with religion as I do. You uh-huh. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, what religion tells you to stay in a life like that. You know? Yeah. And then just uh, praise God. Yeah. Like at the end. Yeah, uh, something, something, you know, I, I'm, I'm being, I, I'm literally being beaten and almost killed by my husband. Let me pray. Yeah, yeah. You know? that'll, that'll fix it. Um, but no, she just, it would just be, I can't or don't worry about it. And it, there were, we'd have summers where they just fought every single day. And I remember I'm probably the only kid wishing I was at school. Like, all the kids like, hey, summer, I dreaded when we'd have spring break wow. or, or Christmas break or whatever it was. Because uh, I knew I'd be home for all of that. Yeah. Or they would just fight at home and I'd be at school. So it'd be all right. Um, and there was, I mean, I... I, I can assume you, you felt resentment to your siblings, but uh, my brothers never got touched oh, really? uh, physically. I mean, he abused them um, emotionally, um, but physically. And so I, I built a resentment towards them. Like, why aren't they getting You think it's because you were the me? oldest? Well, I found, we, I found out my senior year that he wasn't my biological father. Oh. He was their biological father. And so that's... Oh, I found out why. And... Oh. Um, then I that all the pieces came together is well, why my sister never got along with them because she also has a different dad from the uh, all of us yeah um, so it was uh, that re- resentment for me definitely was there and then even to my sister who was off in the the Philippines um, going to college and having all these fun things I'm over here getting my ass beat and my brothers are they're being supported in band and now it, it, it just made sense why he was so supportive of them being in band and doing all their stuff yeah. but if I wanted to try out for basketball or, or do theater it was I, that, that was the shit yeah. and it I don't know what did you do with that anger and that resentment um, growing up Turn to drugs. Turn to drugs. Okay. Yeah. 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 I started smoking pot at 14. Started dropping acid at 15. I've done over 100 hits of acid in my early life. I haven't done any LSD or anything like that since 1990. Well, before I joined the military, you know, 1991. Mm -hmm. But by the time I graduated from high school, I I did probably over 100 hits of acid. Yeah. Um, And lots of pot and basically any, especially at that time, anything that was given to me. That Mm -hmm. was my escape. Yeah. You know. So... So and, I turned to drugs. Yeah. And sex. Sex. I started well, sex a, at a very early one. age. I started yeah. at a very early age. Mm-hmm. By the time I graduated from high school, I had, had over 50 different sex partners. Yeah. So. Um, wow. Um, because yeah. at the time, I was bisexual. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had my first sexual was, experience with a guy when I was 12, but I had my first sexual experience with a woman when I was 15. Actually, it was me and two girls. I was a sophomore and they were both seniors, which I love telling that story to straight guys because I'm like, well, first time I slept with a girl was me and two girls. And that's like every straight man's fantasy. Right, yeah. Here I am, a gay man, and that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Um, with, with, the, with the strict um, Catholic household, um, what was it like try, um, figuring out you're gay? I don't know how to well, put it. What's like, interesting is my older brother is gay too. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's also probably one of the reasons why, why you know, we, so. we, you know, why, in fact, when I first came out, he thought it was from me trying to show him up or take something away from him. Um, but what was interesting about growing up in homose- homosexuality in our family is my mother had two cousins um, that she was really close with. 
And again, my parent, my both sides of my family grew up with each other. So all my mom's side of my family, my aunts, and my uncles, their cousins and aunts and uncles, all knew my dad's family, their brothers mm-hmm. and sisters, cousins, aunts and uncles. They all knew each other and all grew yeah. up with each other. So my mom had two gay cousins. Um, and my dad grew up and was best friends with one of them through most of their childhood. So when I was a kid growing up, I learned, even though we were very, very strict Catholics, we were in a family that was, okay, well, these people are gay. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not dirty. It's just different. And it's okay. Yeah. You know, you still love them. They're still your uncle. They're still your family. They're still your blood. It's okay. Yeah. Um, And what I found interesting, too, about when I finally came out when I was 20 20 years old in 1994, um, my family actually had a hard time processing it with Mm -hmm. me. They didn't have a hard time processing it with my brother, mostly because my brother had always been very flamboyant, a bit effeminate, Mm -hmm. especially the older he'd gotten through high school, etc. Definitely very effeminate. Um, and still is, you know, like he is who he is. Everybody yeah, yeah. is who they are. And um, so it was, and my mom's cousins were very typically, stereotypically you know, gay. Mm-hmm. So here I came along and I was just me. You know, I'd actually always been decent at sports, always had girlfriends, always, you know, surrounded by girls and blah, 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 and being sought after by girls, always... Uh, always being kind of the opposite of what yeah. they expected a gay person to be like. And this is during the 1980s. So, you know, you still kind of had that yeah. stereotype of this is the way gay people act. Mm-hmm. So when I came out of the closet, they still had that old school mindset of, well, you don't act gay. Mm-hmm. Well, are you sure? Because you don't seem like it, you mm-hmm. know? Whereas this day, it's just a part it's, of who you are. It doesn't yeah. define you. It's just part of who you are. And mm-hmm. sexuality, in my opinion, is is a very gray scale. Oh, I yeah. would put myself somewhere just slightly towards the gay side on the middle because I still have a lot of attractions towards women. I always have. I just prefer not to be involved with them because it really doesn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. My attraction for them physically usually stems from who they are as a person. Yeah. You know, rather than uh, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> vagina. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, even though, yeah, I've. I spent plenty of time down one and been in one. I was sleeping with women all the way up until about the age of twenty-three. Mm-hmm. So, with um, so with uh, the military, you said you were uh, kicked out. Yeah, or? yeah, I was kicked out for being gay in ninety-seven. So, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> well, what? this this like was this? during. This was during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It's it's an interesting, and I've actually been wanting to write a, a one man play about my experience. Um, it's an interesting path because I. It's an interesting time that I joined the military when I was in the military because I joined. When I joined, you it was still in place that you had to sign an affidavit. You have to sign an official paperwork that stated that you were not a homosexual and you have never engaged in a homo- any homosexual activities. Now this paperwork, see, this is where they get you. This paperwork, previously to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This paperwork is what they used against you when they found out that you were gay to take away all the pay and make you pay back everything that you got paid while you were while you were in the service. Doesn't matter how long you were. I met people that were in the military for twenty plus years Uh and then got kicked out for being gay and were forced to back pay to pay back the military 
every penny they had ever received while in the military because they had signed paperwork when they it's joined stating they, they weren't, which meant that that paperwork was basically a falsification. Mm-hmm. And they could actually you know, sue you and basically go after you because of the falsified paperwork and you joined the military underneath false pretenses. Mm-hmm. So I actually signed that paperwork, but I joined in February of 92. Um, in November that year, that's when President Clinton got elected. Mm-hmm. And shortly thereafter, he put in place the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. And so the Don't Ask, Don't Tell actually did away with being asked ahead of time. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Um, and basically, the, the policy of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell is basically that. You, you, they're not allowed to ask you uh, or, you know, try to, try to pursue that you are a homosexual or mm-hmm. that you are gay unless it gets reported in. Um, as well as if you are gay, you can be in the military as long as you don't tell anybody and you don't act on it. Um, when I was in, I, deep down I knew I was gay, but I was considered myself bisexual at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I honestly thought I could join and not pursue men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't for the first like year plus that I was in the military. But let me tell you, there's a lot of homosexuals in the military. <laughs> there yeah. are a lot of homosexuals. And not just homosexuals, but bisexuals and, and many people along you know, the perspective, along the spectrum of sexuality. Um, so uh, that didn't, yeah, I didn't stay you know, pure for long. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, in 97, I got turned in by a girl who knew that I was gay. Mm-hmm. And... The reason for that is because she was having a, an affair with a friend of mine at the time who was in his 30s, married kids. Unfortunately, it's a very common thing for spouses to uh, cheat on each other in the service. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's a very, very common thing. And this girl who was 18 years old, just joined the military, was sleeping with my friend. My friend knew that I was gay. He's somebody I confided in. By that point in my life, I was confiding in quite a few of my close friends. And it was open, and, it, and they were cool with it, and they would, you know, it would be fine, you know. And he shared with her that I was gay, and she had no problem with it. Until it got to the point where she decided that she was in love with him and wanted him to leave his wife and kids, and for them to get married, and for them to spend their lives together. And he was, she was just a play toy for him. Yeah, yeah. And so he didn't know what to do. He was having and hawing, and he and I talked, and he sought some advice, and my advice was, dude, do what you want to do. If your family is more important to you, then cut things off with her and focus on your family. Mm-hmm. If, you are, if you feel like you don't really want to be in your family anymore, then cut that cord and make a clean break mm-hmm. you know, and be then with this girl. So he cut cords with her and chose to stay with his family, but amongst um, along with telling her that he was going to do that, he basically told her that you know, upon talking to Frank, well, yeah, this is what he helped me make me realize. So instead of getting even with him, she decided to go after me, and her and her, a friend of hers went into OSI, which is the Office of Special Investigations, and told them that I was. Um, they didn't actually say that, that I was gay. They told them that I was um, dealing, distributing, and uh, um, storing drugs in my dorm room. And the reason why they went that route is because they knew about my drug past, which I told the military I had no drug past. Or I think I told them I spoke pot once or twice. Um, and she had had a similar drug past. So she tried using that against me. 
I don't know how true this is, but I also heard they tried using the homosexual route, but they were like, unless you physically see him engaging in an act, we're not going to pursue it, you know? Yeah. So then they threw in the drugs, and of course that was, living on base, living in a dorm room, that's a huge thing. So, yeah, they actually came to my door on a Monday morning, and I had a high security clearance, I worked in military intelligence at the time, and um, yeah, told me they needed to bring me in for questioning. Uh, once they did, they it was probably about a good three hours or so of questioning, two and a half, three hours, and it was focused mostly on drugs. Yeah. And me going, no, this is no. What are you talking about? I, you know, I mean, I don't do this stuff. I haven't done this stuff in years. Blah blah. blah. Um, but then they got to the point. You know, they wanted to, me to do a, you know, a urine test. I'm like, fine, yeah, I'll do a urine test. Do it right now, you know. Right. And then they wanted to search my room. I was in the process of moving. Uh, of being restationed at a different base. And so I was only maybe about three, four days away from being on a flight to head to South Korea for a year. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, everything had already been, you know, everything had already been played. All my stuff was packed up already, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they asked if they can search my dorm room, and I hesitated. And the reason why I hesitated is because by that point, I had already been in a couple of relationships with a few civilians. Uh, mm-hmm. By that point, I already been in my first love. He and I were together for two and a half years. He was a civilian who lived in San Diego. And, uh, of course, so I had two years worth of you know, letters back and forth and videotapes. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, of course, magazines also. You know, yeah, Every time yeah. I visited in San Diego, I was living a gay lifestyle. You know, I, I was coming home with magazines to beat off to, you know, because yeah, yeah. of course I'm not going to do anything in, you know, on base, you know. Um, so I hesitated because of the stuff that I had in my room that was packed up that were was gay related, and yeah. uh, they jumped all over that, thinking that they had me for the drugs. And I'm like, actually, no. If you search my room, you're going to run into stuff that indicates that I'm homosexual, and. You could immediately tell that was not what they expected. <laughs> yeah. One guy rushed out of the room, and I, that's when I realized that the window, of course, in the room was a two-way mirror or a one-way mirror, whatever that's called. Uh-huh. Yeah. That there was probably my my supervisor and a couple of others sitting and watching the yeah. entire thing. Um, and they basically told me right off the bat, they're like, you realize that's an admission that we have to, that we have to... Uh, um, you know, put in place. And I'm like, that's fine. If it'll clear my name for the drugs, fine. Mm-hmm. So they searched my dorm room and, uh, of course, they didn't find any drugs and, of course, the urine test, you know, came back because I hadn't touched drugs since 1991 and this is 97. And, uh, you know, but they did come across the box of all my, uh, the letters and the magazines and videos that I had uh, were all in one box that Everything was being shipped away to Korea except for that one box. I actually had arranged with a friend of mine in Phoenix to ship to them to hold on yeah, to it yeah. for to like you know for a year until I got back from Korea, and um, so yeah, they were searching through my room and they run into that box and it's addressed and everything. They're like, well, "What's in this box?" I go, "Actually, that's where all the gay stuff is in there." Yeah, that's the only thing they didn't look through. They looked through everything and all the other boxes, what? including <laughs> even like t- are turning over my bed and going through every looking. Every nook and cranny, every single piece of dust in the room overturned, except for that box. Yeah. No, they didn't want to even. They didn't want to approach anything and not the gay box. Anything, yeah. No. 
But um, damn. But once that happened, I was definitely stripped of my security clearance. I had to meet with my first sergeant, which is like your immediate supervisor, um, the next day, and they had to do a formal uh, interview. Um, that everything was uh, uh, documented mm-hmm. about my admission and stuff. Uh, one nice thing is I had, was doing work that was a couple levels above my pay grade. Um, I had always had an exceptional record in the service and was luckily well-liked. So my immediate supervisors and, and my commander and everything were very, very supportive and very, very... Um, they, they basically went to bat for me. Okay. They're probably the biggest reason why I got an honorable discharge when I got discharged. Mm-hmm. But on my paperwork, it does say homosexual admission. Mm-hmm. But when they when they took me in and they did that interview, and they actually gave me the opportunity to, to rescind my declaration. Um, and I told them, no, I, I might yeah. as well. I said it. Let's let's keep it on the record. I, I said it. I, let's let's let it let it sit. Let's let it happen. And then they came back and actually even offered me to stay in the military by a provision in the don't ask, don't tell policy at the time. The name of it cracks me the fuck up. It's called Queen for a Day. <laughs> Basically what it is, you're allowed to say that you are gay. So you're allowed to say that you're gay. Okay. And stay in the military as long as you don't tell anybody else and you don't act upon it. But every supervisor from that point on in your military career will know that you will know that you have declared that yourself as homosexual and will have to basically kind of keep tabs on you and you have to kind of keep, you know, kind yeah. of basically report to them and let them know, yeah, I'm not having gay sex, you know, or yeah. whatever. And basically you're allowed to declare you're gay for basically a day and not act on it for the rest of your military career. Yeah. Queen for a day. day. (laughs) (laughs) That's so stupid. They literally told me the name of that. I'm like, are you kidding? Uh, Like, that's fucking awesome. That's hilarious. So, yeah, it took about a a month and a half. uh, And then I was literally told with less than 24 hours that I was going to be a civilian again. Mm -hmm. That I had to finish up all my... Out processing like within a matter of a few hours and like 12 hours later I was on a plane and headed back to Phoenix so what was interesting at the time is um, some of the reactions that I got everybody was very supportive that knew me on base and the people that I worked with Um, I actually at the time they were casting for uh, uh, one of the real world series and I was nice uh, in Seattle and I was actually putting in for it and uh, because I'm like 23 years old, I'm in the process of getting kicked out of from the military for being gay. They would eat that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I put together videotape and everything, audition tape, and told my parents, and my father was livid about the shame that I'm going to bring to the family. Mm-hmm. About, you know, because you know, him being a veteran from the Vietnam War and being very machismo and very, you know, yeah. ultra, ultra machismo. And John Wayne sits on the right-hand side of God. Yeah. for my father oh you know? my gosh yeah. yeah and um so he was disgusted by the fact that I might go on television with the story of me being kicked out of the military for being gay mm-hmm. so I didn't end up not doing it you know sure. came back to the states and uh, I had to came back to the states came back to uh, Phoenix and had to mm-hmm. pretty much start a new life yeah um and what was cool is I got back to Phoenix 
And within the first month, month and a half, this has happened actually quite a few times in my life. Um, I ran into or I uh, came across a uh, organization that was starting up a Phoenix chapter of the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual Veterans of America. Hey. And um, they were announcing their first meeting to organize. So I'm like, well, hell, I just got out of the military. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I went, and of course, the youngest person there by like t- at least 20 years or more, um, and uh, ended up uh, quickly becoming the vice president. Uh, we became very active. I became uh, really active not only in the gay community, but the veterans community. One thing that was great about the guy that was our president, Wally Strawn, is he was very adamant into trying to get us as integrated into not only the gay community, but into the veterans community. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing in the provisions at the time that banned, you know, homosexual groups from veterans groups from being part of it. Mm -hmm. Actually really never really tried. Um, And we did. And we got death threats. We got, (laughs) we got a lot of crazy things thrown at us, but honestly it more often than not, veterans groups were accepting us once they realized that we were veterans first and happened to be gay. That we cared more about our military and the military service and and respect for the military and veterans issues than basically what their worst fear was is that basically we wanted to run screaming up and down during the veterans parade in pink tutus and, you know, sparklers. So one thing that's fantastic is when we did get into the Veterans Day Parade, we organized, got matching shirts that said veteran across, but the V was a pink triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, we all wore uh, berets with a pink triangle on. And we did, we rehearsed, or rehearsed, <laughs> we practiced every weekend for about two months before the Veterans Day Parade, practiced our marching as a group and practiced cadences, like yeah. traditional military cadences. Yeah. So that way when we were in the Veterans Day Parade, we were doing, we were in step, in time, mm-hmm. all wearing the same thing and doing military cadences the entire way, which really won us over with the veterans community. Yeah. Now, granted, of course, we got death threats from you know, other folks. And yep. during the parade, we had a good amount of, you know, a handful of people that were turning their backs on us, you know, that we couldn't, we weren't even good enough to, yeah, for them to, to face our direction as we passed them, you know. Mm, yeah. But uh, I became, yeah, I became kind of a, uh, an activist, traveled around the country speaking about my experiences, especially since I just got kicked out of the military. Mm. And uh, we also designed, raised the money, and dedicated a memorial that was the first of its kind in the nation uh, to honor gay and lesbian veterans by a gay and lesbian veterans group. It's actually in the National Cemetery of Arizona. And uh, it's the first time the federal government has acknowledged that they're gay, that's officially not acknowledged that there are gay and lesbian veterans. Um, you know, made newspapers across the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was dedicated in on Veterans Day, November eleventh, two thousand. Two thousand. Mm-hmm. So eighteen years ago. Yeah, we did that. Damn. So I was twenty five at the time. Twenty five, twenty six. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I stayed involved with that group. Yeah, we traveled around the country, did quite a bit of speaking. Uh, stayed with that group until 2001. It's kind of, the, again, when I'm faced in a situation where it seems hopeless or it seems like the path has run its course, 
it's time for me to pick up the pieces and create a new path. Mm-hmm. When I got kicked out of the military for being gay, I picked up the pieces and became an activist. You know, mm-hmm. I turned that into a positive and turned that into being able to travel around the country and meet some amazing people and hear some unfortunately horrific stories of other experiences, you know, that people have had from mm-hmm. being kicked out for being gay and lesbian. Um, and in my opinion, I, I like to think that I help change, make a change, you know, in, in some ways, in some aspects. Um, and then kind of got burned out with it in 2001, 2002. And the beginning of 2002 is when I ran into, or when I started uh, doing theater and got cast for the first time in a sh- mm-hmm. audition, Ed cast for the first time in a show. So by that time, I think I was about 28 yeah. or so. And what I find... Uh, again, picking up the pieces and starting up a whole new path. What I find very interesting in a story that I share quite a bit with people that are contemplating making a big leap and letting outside voices dampen their hopes or dampen their plans is the fact that when I decided to jo- to get back involved with theater, I was debating about it and I went over to a friend's house. There were good friends of mine at the time and a mutual friend of Ours was over there. I mentioned to them, hey, listen, I'm thinking about auditioning for the show. I, I want to get back into theater. It's my first passion. I would love to really get back involved and really try to pursue it. And I just need to take this first step. And our mutual friend flat out told me to not try. It would be a waste of my time that hardly what? anybody, which is true, hardly anybody can make a living off of it, that it's such a difficult field. It's true. Yeah. But the untrue, the part that, the really shitty part about it, though, is his advice, though, for it is, so don't even try. You're, you're, you're 28. You're, you've passed the point where you should have started. You don't even try. It's stupid to even try. Don't even, mm-hmm. you know. So for like three hours, me and this guy argued back and forth about even just attempting mm-hmm. the first step. You know, um, and had I had a weaker constitution, or had I been an easier person to, to to push around, I could have easily fallen into that, you know, advice of like, you're right, you know, I shouldn't. Instead, I auditioned, I got cast. A year later, you know, a year later after that, I ended up landing in uh, an acting teacher who took me underneath her wing because she saw me in one of the shows that I did. She taught me uh, film, uh, how to do film and commercial work. Uh, within, you know, right after I finished training with her, I got signed on by Ford. I actually got offered from, offers from three different agencies to sign on with them. I signed on with Ford. Um, I, within a year after that, I landed my first national commercial that was actually Whoa. a SAG and residuals. So nice. I actually made a lot of money off of that national commercial as my first commercial out. I was within yeah, a year and a half, of, uh, less than two years after my first audition, I was already getting cast in professional Productions and professional theater, uh-huh. um, and it was only let's see. I started doing theater in two thousand two, ten years ago, two thousand eight. So it was only about six years later, after doing, I was one of those actors where I was constantly working on more than one project at a time. You know, mm-hmm. during the week I was rehearsing one play. On the weekends I was performing in a different company with a different play. Uh-huh. Uh, Usually once a year, I actually was rehearsing two plays while performing a different play on the. Yeah, oh, it's one of the one of those actors. Um, and it was in two thousand eight that, for fun, I decided I was going to start a sketch comedy group. Uh, it was just supposed to be a temporary thing for a few shows with me and my friends. It ended up taking off and doing really, really well. And even when I 
we did five shows and I cut the cord. I'm like, okay, this is too crazy. It's too busy. It's taking up too much of my time and I can't get people to commit for successive shows. They're usually good for just a show. Mm -hmm. And then the writers want to write for them more, but then we have a whole new different cast, a whole new different group of people in the next show that I'm like, you know what? I need to focus on other things. I can't do this anymore. It's too hectic. It's too crazy. Um, Because at the time, all the actors I was using were actor friends of mine that were also just as busy in the theater community Mm -hmm. as I was. So, of course, they were busy with other projects. Um, And when I quit doing the group, you know, when I'm like, okay, we're done, people were going to the venue and getting angry that we weren't doing shows. And they started getting complaints and literally people yelling at them about the show and Uh wanting wanting the show to come back. So I ended up... You know, announcing that, okay, fine, we'll we'll resurrect it from the dead and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And now we're having our 10-year anniversary Hell show for yeah. it. It's weird because it's become so successful. But on the other hand, I never intended it to take over my life. I never intended it to define me. Mm-hmm. I never intended it to take me as much away from actual theater or, or traditional theater mm-hmm. um, and plays. That, that is my true passion. But on the other hand, I have developed and gave birth to this group that is fearless. And that's one of the things that I'm most proud of is the fearlessness. When I was an actor, the best compliment that I always heard and the things that I would always be touted on by others was that I was a fearless actor. Mm-hmm. That no matter what the director gave to me, no matter what was thrown at me, I would do it and I would make it work and I would make it believable and I would make it, you know, I, I could do anything. doesn't matter what was thrown at me, I would be willing to take it on mm-hmm. as a challenge to make it look like it was real and genuine and not just, oh, I was told to do just, this, so yeah. this is the move I'm supposed to do. Or this is the <laughs> um, so I became known actually around town as a fearless actor. And when I started The Sixth Sense, and The Sixth Sense started being known as a fearless group that, yeah. And we, we definitely are. We're not for the easily offended. We're so many lines that we cross. But the, the attitude that we have, and we're so very wrong, um, and we, we pick on everything you can, just, you can pick on. And the reason why we do that is because, one, it shows how ridiculous things like that are, how ridiculous prejudice is, how ridiculous... Uh, you know, uh, racism is, how ridiculous sexism is, how ridiculous homophobia is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. By by showing it to the extreme, by Mm -hmm. showing it to be stupidly funny because of how ridiculous it is, you know. And what's interesting is how things have evolved in the last 10 years since I started the group in the era of Trump. Yeah. In the last, like, year, we've done some sketches uh in the past that... We did numerous times that were great, that killed the audience, that were just poking fun at racism and poking fun at, you know, the way that, that people pick on minorities. And then we started doing it last summer is when we noticed it. We did a couple that were definitely picking on, you know, some of the racist stereotypes. And it started having the feel for the audience and even us that it almost feels like we're condoning this mm. because of how... I don't, want, I don't want to use the word accepted, but how empowered racists, yeah. racists feel these days, yeah. you know? And we felt, we started having to even quantify it by even putting a disclaimer at the beginning saying, you know, like, we're we just picking on yeah. this, you know, where we, we don't agree with these kind of things. Because it would start feeling like 
were promoting this behavior rather than yeah, yeah. making fun of it just because of the atmosphere that exists now. Yeah. It's so weird. It's like know? it flipped when yeah. you were you were poking fun at it, but now it's I don't want to say the norm, but yeah, you have the front the guy who's in the the chair now is mm-hmm. the face of a lot of that or all of that and to poke yeah, to poke fun of it is in a weird way kind of backing it but so yeah, it I, damn, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> you would think we would evolve more, not yeah, backwards. Yeah, we're regressing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, a Sixth Sense has been an interesting animal because um, mm-hmm. it's kind of developed to be a love-hate relationship with it. I didn't mean for it to define my life nor take up all of my time. Um, luckily, at about the f- fourth year of existence, uh, I started uh, utilizing Bill Dyer. Um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to meet him when you were performing there at our space. But he he and I, he became one of my strongest lead actors in The Sixth Sense. And then it ended up really becoming obvious that he and I had the same sense of humor as well as that he was a very strong, had very strong visions, was a very strong director. So I started co-directing shows with him. And then we... Once we closed down Soul Invictus, which is the name of the venue that we spent our first five years performing at, um, which I actually ended up taking over and running after our second year of being there, um, uh, we uh, we kind of bounced around with gypsies for a couple of years, and then we opened up our own space, the Sixth Sense Theater, which mm. is where yeah, your show with B3 took place last year. And um, we opened that about two years ago. And... Uh, from that point on, I brought in Bill. Actually, no, it was when we closed Soul Invictus uh, five years ago that I brought Bill on as a co-producer. Mm-hmm. So we started directing every other show. You know, oh, cool. he, I would direct a show, then the next show he would direct, and then I would direct the one after that. Um, and we've kept on that up until last year when I started B3. Um, right before I started B3, I decided that I was going to start B3 and start getting back to my first original passion, which is theater, and highlight, you know, local uh, writers, playwrights, and artists. Um, but I couldn't, it's going to be definitely way too much to try to produce and be in charge of all of that while still running The Sixth Sense. So I signed over everything and all control over to The Sixth Sense to Bill uh-huh. last year. Um, and But then, I think like more than half the projects I've worked on since that have been The Sixth Sense. Yeah. <laughs> didn't exactly get away from it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, so he officially runs the group now, so which is just awesome because when I move here in, in about two months, the group will still keep going. Yeah, you know, even if the venue closes down, he's still planning on you know finding a way. finding uh, still being able to to be able to rent other venues or perform at other venues and still keep the six cents alive and going because it's still ten years later we've got such a strong following we've got. Over sixty people that's involved with the groups. When you come, you know, with all the writers, actors, tech folk, um, yeah, we've got over sixty people that are involved with the group. Yeah. We we've got some really majorly talented people. And what's nice is when I restarted the Sixth Sense in its ninth year or in its second year, nine years ago, I was lucky enough to get a good amount of people that auditioned for the the reboot of it that were interested in just doing comedy. They weren't interested That's in great. doing plays. They weren't interested in working for other companies. They wanted to focus on just sketch comedy, yeah. which gave the writers 
a lot more to work with because then they got to know the actors well, know what they could do, start developing characters and recurring characters and know how to write to people's strengths and, you know. Yeah. And it really, from year two on, it really became a strong entity of on its own. Yeah. You know, with its own voice and its own personality and its own familiar faces. And that's what we've been since, you know. And the folks, some of the folks that have been following us for years, we can refer things you know, throw, throw referrals back to things from years and years ago, and they're right there with us. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Which we don't do that often because, you know, you want each show to be a standalone show. There was another sketch group, I won't say their name, <laughs> that used to exist in town. Uh-huh. That you went to one of their shows, and over half the jokes were in-jokes. And oh, so fuck. if you weren't familiar with them, you... Then you're just kind you, of sitting there. Yeah. Just sitting there going, okay. Was, yeah. I guess that's funny for a reason, because everybody... Well, most other people or half the other people are laughing, but yeah, but uh, but it's great, yeah, because we've got a great group of people who just again are willing to go for it, yeah, you know. I mean, yeah. So, cool. so yeah, it's 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 an interesting. And so now you're you're moving to Colorado, yeah, for two months. What's what's going on? Uh, my chosen family lives up there. Oh, cool. My closest friends. Yeah, um, yeah. Two of my closest friends moved up there. In Westminster, which is a northern suburb of Denver, uh, about four, four and a half years ago, mm-hmm. and then two of my other closest friends moved up to Boulder mm-hmm. about two years ago. Okay. Um, ever since my first pair of friends moved up there, I've been going up there about three, four times a year. <laughs> oh, so shit! Yeah, you just uh, and because uh, it's beautiful, and and well, they're not only are my chosen family, but they're the ones that know me and know, and get me the most, you know, because. Yeah. Let's face it, I'm, I'm not an easy person sometimes. I've got a lot of fucked up mental things. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they know how to deal with it, and they know how to, to approach me, and they know how to, to be with me. Um, but uh, when I went up there for the first time, I started seeking out theater companies because I was already touring around the idea of possibly moving up there too. And I ran across a theater company I contacted a couple of them, but the one that was the most responsive was the one that I really pursued, which is called Denver's Dangerous Theater. Mm-hmm. And it's one, run by a woman named Winnie. And um, it's very provocative, very no-holds-barred, let's cross as many lines as we want to cross. Yeah. Everything is independently produced. A lot of the scripts that she uses are scripts that are locally written or things that she's written herself. She's real involved with the Fringe Festival circuit and the solo performance uh, solo performance festival circuit. Um, and it's akin to a lot of the work that I've done, especially at Sol Invictus and some of the more underground provocative theater companies, Theater in My Basement, Nearly Naked Theater, um, a lot of the, the companies that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. So I got to know her, saw a couple of their shows, and ended up developing a, developing a friendship with her through Facebook and through online. And it wasn't until last year that I decided, okay, it's time. I need to take control over my career again. Being involved with The Sixth Sense, even though I gave everything over to Bill last year, I have too much of a strong commitment. It's my child. I, I gave birth to it. I have too much of a strong sense of commitment to be able to just walk away from it and mm-hmm. still live in town. In order to take back my own path, I need to completely break away. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
So I started looking into Denver and I contacted Winnie and I talked to my agents about, you know, possibly moving up here. Next thing I know, all these doors start opening. Mm-hmm. Um, Winnie has actually offered me a partnership to help run Denver's Dangerous Theater, to help produce, direct, uh, write shows in there, acting shows in there, start putting together comedy shows. Uh, not only a sketch comedy, but also you know regular comedy shows, as well as even uh, possibly going venturing into like burlesque shows. Um, working on projects for us to do the Fringe Festival circuit together. I've got a solo piece that I do called The Last Castrato that was written by Andrew Enninger, who lives in L.A. these days. Um, beautiful, twisted, fucked up story. Yeah. But it's a one-man show that's about 45 minutes that is one of the things that I performed a few times. I just did it last, last November and I did it about five years ago. And we're gonna, I'm going to be performing that up in Denver. I'm going to be hawking that out to the Fringe Festival and solo performance uh, festival circuits around mm-hmm. the country and start taking that on tour around the country. Um, so yeah, so all that started popping up. My friends that live in Boulder are also past Six Sense members, which we call Sickies. So they're, they're, they're past Sickies. Uh, my friends Cher and Clay. And in fact, I just uh, married them off two weeks ago. They came down here to get married, and I'm, or, I'm ordained. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so I got yeah, to that's... perform the wedding for them. Um, and yeah, they're both interested in jumping into getting back involved with sketch comedy and comedy pieces and putting things together with me. In fact, we are already talking about possibly doing a podcast of our own, but doing more um, like old time stage plays, like writing oh. out scripts and doing like old time radio shows with yeah. folio, art, folio artists, etc., and doing a podcast of, of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got my friends Missy and Josh that were the first couple that moved up there. I'm they graciously have opened up their home to me to take over their basement which has its own bathroom it's literally like its own standalone kind of a uh, mini apartment or or what is that called we it's an apartment um, with one studio yes a little studio which excites me to live in a basement because i grew up with laverne and shirley oh nice so one of my perfect one of the things that i thought was the coolest <laughs> thing when i was a kid was that they lived in the basement and they had windows and you could see people's feet uh-huh. <laughs> and i'll be living in the same situation except the feet will just be the dogs in the backyard yeah but, yeah. Uh, but so i'll be moving in with them and they've been very gracious about also giving me a little bit of time to to be able to get on my feet um but right now, everything that I've been looking into with agencies, with theater, with actually even um, being able to market myself for destination weddings and custom uh, wedding ceremonies, mm-hmm. customized wedding ceremonies, so many doors, as soon as I started looking into it, just started opening up that it just felt like the universe was telling me, it's time. Right. It's time to, again, gather your stuff and go through go to a new path and start down a new path so I'll be able to make a living strictly through the arts in Colorado and that's another nice thing too Union uh, Colorado's a union state Mm. so the commercial work the voiceovers the industrials and things like that up there are paid at union wages living wages Arizona's a right to work state I do a commercial here. I get anywhere from six hundred to twenty-five hundred dollars, uh-huh. and that's it. The very first commercial I did was a SAG commercial with residuals, and I got a few. Actually, I got five. Let's uh, into the five digits mm-hmm. of, oh, uh, for that. Yeah, yeah. it only ran for three months, and let me tell you, it, I was shocked at how much money I got. Um, 
But and of course, though, it kind of spoiled me because I was my first commercial out of you right. know, over out of about two dozen commercials, and I've never been paid like that <laughs> since. <laughs> but uh, but you know, so you can't you can't make a living in Arizona, off of it, in Phoenix especially, and equity theater companies, professional theater companies. Well, we got two in in Phoenix, yeah. and one of them doesn't even primarily cast from local actors at all. Yeah. So and the other one is, is is kind of they've got their their stable house of who they use and they mostly do musical theater and I'm not a musical theater actor. Yeah. You know, there really is no opportunity to be able to make your living through the arts in Arizona. Yeah. But you can in Colorado, and that's something I would like to pursue. And if things don't work out in Colorado, I have been able to f- fashion my life and to put my life in a in a position where I'm more of a gypsy. Mm-hmm. That if things don't work out well there or things don't really pan out there, I can easily just jump to a different city then. Try my luck there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've also found out and doors have opened once I started looking into it is I'm being invited to be to go out and audition for professional theater companies that I know folks through in Miami, in Sarasota, in Ooh. New Haven, in Chicago, in yeah. Seattle. You know, there's a lot more other opportunities for me to go and audition for other regional theater companies, other professional theater companies. I can use Denver as a home base and not yeah. necessarily, especially since I don't have to get a day job, mm-hmm. um, you know, a day corporate job or anything like that that ties me down there. Right. I can have the flexibility to leave and do a show in Florida for three months, Damn. you know, to, to go to Seattle and, you know, or like I'm planning on doing with the my solo performance with the Las Castrato, travel around to different cities mm-hmm. for one-offs, you know, for one weekend performances yeah, and get paid for it. Wow. Yeah. So, so it's time, you know, especially at my, well, I was gonna say, especially at my age, it's, it's time to move. But I'm uh, I'm 44, turning 45 in August. When I first started doing theater, I was 28. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, real theater, you know, not kid stuff. Um, Laura Durant in town. Uh, yes. She's definitely nice. one of the pillars of the theater community. A good friend of mine. She uh, she actually gave me this. Back oh. in 2004, uh-huh. Saint Genesius, the patron saint of actors. Okay. Um, she's uh, she told me back in 2004, the very first project we ever worked together. I shared with her that I was intimidated at the time. I'd only been doing theater for about a year and a half at that point, um, and was very intimidated by the fact that I was actually running into people who were kind of being kind of snotty with me. Because I was getting not good choice roles, mm-hmm. but I did not have a degree. I did not have any training. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, and they had their degree and they've been doing this and they've been doing theater all their lives. And, and people were kind of jackasses. Some people were kind of jackasses yep. towards me. You know, I remember being elitist or being snotty. And um, of course, look where I am, where, look where I am now, look where they are. Anyway, yeah. um, there you go. But she told me, she pulled me aside and she told I was telling her about that. And she's like, Frank, you're at the perfect age of getting started. Stick with it. The older you get, the less competition you have, especially on the professional level, because people give up. People have mm. people end up having to. They're not having success, so they end up having to get jobs that they can no longer do things like that anymore. They end mm-hmm. up falling into and having a family that ends up, you know, taking up their time that they can't pursue it, you know, right. as a professional on a professional level. So, like, the older you get. The better you'll become, the more trained you'll become, as long as you take heart into actually improving yourself. Because right. let's face it, too many people just rest on their laurels and don't improve. Uh-huh. Um, 
And she's like, and the older you get, you'll see you're going to have less and less competition as you're getting better and better. And that is truly the case, you know, in the, yeah. in the past, so what, uh, 15, 16 years that I've been doing theater? Yeah. The older that I get, the, not only the stronger am I getting, but the less competition that I have. <laughs> the more great. people are just giving up and dropping off. Yeah. I have no desire to be famous, you know. Yeah, yeah. Fame means nothing to me. I just want to spend the rest of my life creating art, creating experiences, creating things that make people think, that make people laugh, that make people cry, that, that make people feel mm-hmm. something, that make people share an experience that they may have never been exposed to in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's what keeps us tied. That's what keeps us connected to each other are these experiences that we don't seem to really want to open up to anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there wouldn't be as many racists out there, as many homophobes out there, as many hateful people out there if they would just open themselves to an experience that is unlike their own. Right. You know, they are so shut off to anything that's not of their own. And it even things that they f- accidentally fall into will help open up their minds, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So that's all I, I want out of life is just to be able to, to create... You know, things that will help bring us together, help make us think. Yeah. We definitely need that now. Yeah. Because some of the shit that comes up is just, if you think about it, for like a minute, it makes no sense. Yeah, I know. Or just, you could undo it. And it's, and it's also with, because I'll be sitting with friends and half of them, if they're younger, they'll they'll just be sitting on their phones. Yeah. They don't they don't talk in person or when they try to it's it's really awkward like they don't know how and so yeah that's that's a, a great when when something can just hit you and even to just start a conversation about it and it it around the time when uh, the whole the trump was getting elected um a lot of people just started deleting everybody who doesn't agree with yeah. their their views and it's I'm kind of torn because I want to try to talk to those people and try to figure out why do you hate them? Why do you think that they're this way? Or what? where does this come from? Yeah. But if we just shut them out and just we keep to ourselves, it's, it's not going to work. We've just become entrenched our own camps. Yeah. yeah. So then now we're just butting heads forever. Yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous. You know, we've, we've lost the art of subtlety. We've lost the art of compromise we've lost the art yeah. of working together mm-hmm. you know I mean, what I find very telling and very sad is when the United States when the Republican Congress this is during McCarthyism at the time was when they took off e pluribus unum off our currency mm-hmm. you know united we stand and replace it with in God we trust yep. you know it's uh, we, we no longer stand united anymore no. you know I think if we had at least that motto it would force people to reconsider again mm-hmm. you know, to be that united we stand divided we fall yeah you know, that's not even in the lexicon of our country anymore no it's... it should be yeah you know I don't get it I don't get it yeah you know, so I don't get it <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this yeah I no, really appreciate it. And it this was so much more than I thought it was going to be I, I go into these like with this, an open mind and I'm just ready to, to soak it in and it, it's, um, for me personally as, a, as an actor, uh, it's inspiring to hear your story because I didn't know that stuff with your family. And to hear a few similar, a few parallels, mm-hmm. 
Um, it was actually pretty well, a lot of parallels between you and I, which is very yeah, interesting. I was what one thing I, I do have to say though about my parents and my family, they are very, very proud of the compliment accomplishments that I have done. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that even more so is I was born tongue tied. Um, oh, the skin underneath my tongue uh-huh. was attached all the way to the tip of my tongue. So I basically talked like this. You know. When I was a oh. little kid, they actually thought I was deaf mm-hmm. because I couldn't right. read my tongue. I, so it sounded like I couldn't hear and I was talking like a deaf kid would. Yeah. Um, so they actually discovered, yeah, it's because I was tongue-tied and I had to have the skin cut underneath my tongue. But because of that, from kindergarten until fourth grade so for five years i had to go to a speech therapist um, pretty much daily yeah and learn how to use my tongue and learn how to speak Mm -hmm. and then here i am as an adult doing public speeches doing professional acting doing you know one man 45 minute shows you know with just me on the stage um whereas yeah in the start of life i could fucking talk yeah so it's gotta come overcome adversity yeah a lot of a, uh, but stick with it, man. I mean, if it's your passion, and whether you do it as a hobby or whether you pursue or pursue it, you'll stick with it. Yeah, that's the biggest Thank thing. You, yeah. Do what makes you happy. Yeah, it's not, it's love, not hurting anyone else. Yeah, and I love when you said you you know you don't you're not trying to be famous, and then I think that's that's a a, li- a little naive dream people have oh God, growing yeah. up is like I want to be in the movies, but yeah. somewhere. A few years ago when I was doing plays, it, it, it clicked in my head to just do what I love. And and acting is what I love doing. And it's it wasn't that thing anymore. Um, and if that's your thing, then that's your thing. But it I just love doing it. And when, when I get off stage and people say, I laughed so hard when you said this. Or I really hated you when you did this <laughs> thing. Like if I play that, that kind of character. And... I love that yeah. to get them to feel something for this this hour and a half, whatever it is. For the comedy shows, it's great to make them laugh and great to make people think and blah, blah, blah. But with theater and developing a character and disappearing and becoming somebody else yeah. is what I really, yeah. really am passionate about, both as a director and especially as an actor. One of the, my favorite things that I always hear from actually fellow actors that I'm on stage with is when they're after a show, they're like, you freaked me out. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah, They're yeah, like, yeah. I looked at your eye. You were not your face, your eyes. There was no Frank there. Mm-hmm. You were co- completely different person. Or you even have friends that go see a show. They're like, I did not see you yeah. at all. That was really freaky. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. being able to disappear and become someone else. And I think that's kind of one of the things that we have in common is the fact that the way that we grew up. I think people like us. It becomes easier to kind of become somebody else mm-hmm. you know because yeah. we've probably had to do that a lot when we were kids yeah. as a defense mechanism as, 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 a, as a mechanism to kind of put ourselves in a world where we weren't well, we're just, a, yeah. a, getting the abuse that we were getting you yeah. know to turn it off and it's yeah and that's what I'm I'm super grateful with with every time I got to audition or even be a part of something and um, yeah that's why I wanted you on because there was that that last little week where I think Luke was just super busy and he couldn't. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, he was working on another show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and started. so you got you got to throw in your insight and it helped out a lot. And it just shows that 
no matter what point you are in in the play and i think it was a week before we opened yeah. like the week of and you were just throwing out insight to me and i mean to all of us but um it can always improve there's always something you can oh, yeah. add and do to it and it's there's always room to learn yeah. and grow and move and, and quite frankly you don't really get that chance until you're off script until you really yeah, start yeah. to embody the characters there's a there's a great oh man I can't think of his name right now a very a prolific and wonderful Broadway director who who's an amazing director and, and he states he says this in a documentary um, that it's the details what takes something from being a good show mm-hmm. to being a great show are the details mm-hmm. and that's also the difference in my opinion between being an amateur and being a professional is the details. You can't make it about yourself. You can't make it about your ego because you're never going to grow. You're never going to learn. You're never going to truly pull apart from who you are and become somebody else, become a different character. And it's those details that make the difference. You can't be lazy about it. can't be half-assed. You can't just, bleh. You know, it's the details that make it, that make it. You know? Yeah. You have to care about those details. Yeah. You know, and that just gets more natural once you once you get more used to it. Right. And you go and you learn. You, you you don't have to train. You don't have to go to classes. You learn by doing. But you have to take that learning part. Mm-hmm. Too many people will just jump into a show and then just they don't take anything from it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Learn, grow, yeah. and no matter how good you are, no matter how far you've gone, you can still learn. You can still grow once you decide that you know everything. You're stunting your growth. Fucking done. And you're done. You're just, yeah. And you, in my opinion, then you start getting worse. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Um, Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, man. Yeah, I, thank it's you so much. <laughs> yeah. Cool. 